Good morning again, everyone. We'll be together in the book of Deuteronomy this morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn there to chapter 8. If you're new with us, our normal habit is to simply open a book in the Bible and work our way paragraph by paragraph through the whole book, start to finish. So right now we're doing something very unusual in that we're looking not at a specific book, but at a topic addressed in many different books. We're considering what the Bible says about money. And you keep coming back week after week. This is amazing to me. Um, In Matthew chapter 6, the fact that you don't laugh is concerning. There's a few. Thank you. Um, In Matthew chapter 6, in our first week, we uh, considered this idea that if we treasure God, we'll leverage money for spiritual gains. You see, money isn't evil. Money isn't bad. Money isn't wrong. We all need it in order to function in this society. God is not against treasures. He's against us treasuring our treasures. He's against us worshiping our stuff instead of worshiping our Savior. And so when we're thinking rightly about money, we're seeing that God is far better and far more important. And so we're treasuring Him and yet using what He entrusts to us for spiritual good. Last week, we considered the rest of Matthew chapter 6, and we saw that instead of worrying, our call is to trust our faithful Father who will provide for our needs. Friends, we have in God not only a Savior, a King, a Lord, a Master, but we have the perfect Dad. We have the Dad who takes care of our most essential needs as we trust Him. This morning, we'll go from the book of Matthew, all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. And we'll consider together the link between material abundance and spiritual poverty. Very often there's a close connection, and we'll uncover what it is today. To get us started, um, here's a picture from the Grand Canyon. Many of you have uh, been there and seen this sign or something close to it. Did you pay attention to that sign? Yes, you're still here. The sign is a warning that ahead is a rather large danger. If you don't heed that warning, here's what happens. Look at the next slide. You somehow become a gigantic person. That has been squashed like a pancake. Friends, our passage today will give us a critical warning sign. It will say, danger ahead. As Marisa comes to read it for us, I hope you'll watch for this in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 through 20. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness 
with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water? Who brought you water out of the flinty rock? Who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know? That he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Thank you. Very happy passage, is it not? (laughs) Friends, the movement um, in this text, you'll notice, is that we're given what is a very certain temptation. That if particular conditions are met, this temptation will come. And then we're we're told how to move toward the solution that God provides. You see, with every temptation, is always a way out. Christian, you never have to sin. God always provides the means through which we can choose to follow Him. And then finally, the text ends with the warning of what will happen if we don't heed the solution given to us. So this morning, in the few minutes we have together, I just want to move through the passage in that way. Considering the temptation we face, the solution given to us, and the cost that we will bear if we remain indifferent. You'll notice in verse 11, the first two words of the text say, to take care. Now this isn't the kind greeting we somehow give each other as we part. It's not, take care, see you later, but rather it is the stern and urgent warning that we must guard ourselves, that we must watch out. God's saying, look ahead, a thousand feet ahead. There's a ledge, and if you don't watch out, you will, in fact, go over that spiritual ledge. Here's the ledge. It's when our material needs are met, and especially when we have leftovers, when there's extra, then a certain temptation creeps in. The temptation is to forget God. The temptation is that we would turn from an active trust in God and instead begin to trust in, depend upon, and give ourselves to the one who we think of as earning that treasure in the first place. So to put it simply, it's to stop trusting God and start trusting money. With a sense of abundance often comes a sense of status and a propensity to look around and say at everybody else, look at what I did. I have no needs. I am a self-sufficient, self-made man. Years ago, I went to Rwanda on a mission trip, and 
we were able to add a day and go see the famous monkeys, gorillas, that live in the northern part of the country. Yes, monkeys. We literally hiked until I thought I was going to die. And then we found that group. There's about 30 of them. And one big silverback would stand and do this. And it made the coolest sound I think I've ever heard. And they weren't in a cage. They were actually all around us. Friends, when, when we have wealth, it is as though we become silverbacks beating on our chest saying, look at me. I'm in charge. I have all I need. Back away. I am a self-sufficient human being. Friends, there is an undeniable connection being made in this passage between material abundance and spiritual poverty. Verse 12 says, When you have eaten and are full, when you have built good homes, Verse 13, when everything you own has multiplied, then, verse 14, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. It doesn't work on my chest. Friends, Deuteronomy was written somewhere around 3,500 years ago written by a man named Moses, originally to the Israelites. And as Moses preached through this passage, very likely it was originally a sermon. And as he got to this section of Deuteronomy 8, the Israelites were not well off. They did not have much. See, Deuteronomy was given to the people of God in this period of time between Egypt and Israel. And for an entire generation, the people of God had wandered around in the desert between Egypt and what we now call Israel. They'd wandered because they were under the judgment of God. And because they were wandering, they were ever in physical need. They never had plenty. Now, while God certainly provided for them, they weren't wandering around in the desert with a lot of coin. They weren't banking more and more savings. They weren't getting new chariots every other year with nicer rims. They weren't increasing their contribution to their Roth IRAs. They weren't upgrading to the latest gaming systems. They were just trying to survive. Every morning they'd get up and go out and their food for the day would be there. Nothing more, nothing less. Then they'd pack up and carry what little they had onto the next place. For an entire generation, that's how they lived. And yet Moses knew that very soon they would stand on the banks of the Jordan River and they would cross that river and seemingly within days they would face a temptation they'd never had. They would have more 
been enough. They'd settle into fertile land. They would build nice houses. They would grow great food. They'd have so much food, in fact, they would have a pantry. Can you imagine? And they would store up for later. And ever so subtly, a people accustomed to daily depending upon God to provide would find themselves thinking, I don't need him. Material abundance often leads to spiritual amnesia. Now, the rate at which this happens is certainly different for different people. And so we can't look around at each other and say, well, they have more than me, therefore they must have forgotten God more than I have. It doesn't work that way. Friend, each of us walks a path with the Lord in which for ourselves we have to answer, am I living in dependency upon God or have I forgotten Him? But the temptation, no no doubt, is present for any of us. You see, a, a lack of pressing physical needs very often bleeds into a thinking we have no spiritual needs either. And when we lose our sense of need for God, then we stop going to Him. And when we stop going to Him, we stop obeying Him. And when we stop obeying Him, we have, in fact, forgotten Him. We become kings and queens over our own little kingdoms, foolishly living as though we are in charge. Silverback. I love the way David Paul Tripp, Paul David Tripp puts it in his book on money. He says, money can finance your allegiance to the kingdom of self. Isn't that true? Church, in our lack of material need, have we forgotten God? In your lack of need, have you forgotten God? It's simply not true that you have to have millions of dollars in order for this to happen to you. It can happen with relatively little. In fact... What the passage is actually teaching is very similar to last week. You see, our needs are actually food and clothing. And if those needs are met and there is, in fact, an abundance of even just those, then we will face this temptation to forget God. Has it happened to you? Have you found yourself going through periods of Days, weeks, months, in which the only time your thoughts move towards God are in this room. If so, it may in fact be due to the abundance of your possessions. Now, thankfully, Deuteronomy 8 teaches not only this serious temptation but also a way out. You see, no Christian ever faces a temptation that is unable to be met with obedience. Our passage gives us a solution to the problem. 
Now, the solution is like a coin. I have one. On one side, there's a heads, and on the other side, tails. Great job, Brett. Imagine with me, though, that what we have on this coin is not heads and not tails, but what we have on one side is the word beware. And on the other side, remember. The solution to the temptation to forget God is a single solution, but it's like a coin that has two sides. On the one side, it's to beware, and on the other side, it's to remember. Beware, let's think about that first together. What are we bewaring of? Well, if we break that word down, it means to be aware of something. Beware is to be aware. Beware of the temptation. Beware of the warning signs. Be actively on guard. Beware. Be aware. Perhaps an illustration would help. Sixty years ago, Smoking cigarettes was the popular thing to do in the United States. Now, it's not at all the popular thing to do. How did that happen? Well, it happened through an awareness of what it does. Right? When smoking was at its peak in the United States of America, the average... American smoked 4,400 cigarettes every year. Oh my gosh. Now, to be clear, I don't think it's necessarily a sin to smoke a cigarette, but it is stupid. Now, how has this changed? How did we go from in the 1960s, it's estimated that 42% of Americans smoked every day, and today, that figure is only 15%. That is a stunning drop in one generation. How's that happened? Well, it's happened through the awareness that toking on those cigarettes is going to kill you. It causes cancer. You will, if you do enough of it, die from it. My own grandmother, the one I was the closest to, died from emphysema because she wouldn't quit smoking. The awareness of the risk has brought about a massive decrease in the popularity of this terrible habit. What if we became aware of the warning that prosperity brings. You know, if you go to buy a pack of cigarettes today, it literally has a label on it that says, in essence, hey, dummy, this causes cancer. What if when the direct deposit from work hit our bank accounts, a warning popped up on the screen? And that warning said, beware. 
with this paycheck comes the temptation to trust it, not God. What if when you went to make a big purchase like a, a car or a house, you had to sign a form that said, I am well aware that as I sit in my nice new car, my temptation will be to think I'm something because I have this piece of metal. Or if I sit in this house, I will be tempted to think I'm better than people without one. What if when we got a raise at work, that raise came with a warning label? Warning, hazardous to your spiritual health. Friend, this is the way out of the solution. It's not to not have anything, but rather to be aware that the temptation will increase commensurate with having more. Just like it's not a sin to smoke a cigarette, it's not a sin to have a lot of money. But what's sinful is placing your trust in that which God has provided instead of in the God who provided it. To avoid becoming people who forget God, we must beware. We must be aware that we might, in fact, do so. So that's what's on our first side of the coin. Beware. Temptation ahead. Now the second side, the back side of that coin says remember. We're to remember God in all His sovereign actions for the good of His people. I won't take the time to read it, but if you just glance in your Bible at the second half of verse 14, all of 15, and all of verse 16, you'll see that Moses is here recounting some of the greatest acts of God in the Old Testament for His people. And in particular, it's as though he's got out his highlighter and he's, he's highlighting the things that God did in the Exodus when he rescued the Jews out of slavery and brought them up with miracle after miracle, providing for them in their wandering in the desert until they reached the promised land. If you're familiar with those stories, you'll know exactly what he's talking about as you read through just those few, few verses. But maybe as you look at your Bible, you've never actually heard those stories. Well, friend, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Instead, take that Bible home. If you don't own one, take one out from under the seat. And later today, take the 30, 45 minutes it might take you to read through the book of Exodus. It's the second book in the Bible. If you don't know where it is, turn left from where you are. You'll find it. Exodus is the story of how God rescued his people. And it is the prototype for how God rescues people fully and finally in Christ. It is as riveting as any movie you could ever see. And what's different is it's actually true. Read through it and you'll find the ways that God delivered his people. Moses says, Remember what God has done for you. Church, what about us? Do you remember when God rescued you? Do you remember what life was like before 
you knew Jesus. You were a wreck. I honestly think I was the most arrogant, prideful, bullheaded, butt-faced teenager on the planet. And God, in his mercy, in the very height of my arrogance, said, I want you. What was your life like before Jesus? What has he done for you? Friend, the way to not fall prey to worshiping money instead of stuff, the way to not forget God is to regularly get the fire poker and stoke the embers of your memory of what he's done for you. Many of you know about a little over two years ago, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease called lupus. And one of the greatest things that's happened through these last two years is that God has regularly poked the fire of my remembrance of what he's done for me. And in particular, one arena in which this has happened that I'm not proud of, but I'm happy to tell you about, is is as I see the homeless population that's all around us, and many Sundays that's right here with us. You see, when I have flares of lupus, it attacks my brain, and I reach the point I can't function. I can't think. I can't read. I can't even talk hardly. All I can do is lay flat on my back in a dark room and wait. And in those moments, the thing that changes, what is used by God to bring me out of it, is medications I could never, ever, ever afford without health care. When I go in the hospital and get Uh, rituxin pumped into my body, it costs $34,000 for a single IV bag. And slowly but surely, it improves. And then I'm back to normal. And then I walk the half a mile from my house to the church, passing three, four, five, six homeless people on the way. And friend, do you realize the vast majority of homeless people are ill and they have no means through which to get medicine. And I find myself almost daily thinking, God, why is that not me? I am no better. I am no different. If I had no health care and I had no family and I had no church, I think it would be me. But God in his kindness has chosen to give me an abundance. He does not owe me. 
He is choosing to extend my life by giving me medical abundance. And what that's done, among other things, is quelch an arrogance that I didn't know I had. Because I looked at people on the street and thought, you're there because you won't work. When it is far more complicated than that. If you can't work, and you have nobody, that's what happens. Friends, what's Jesus doing for you? How are his blessings showered upon you? You may not be happy for poison like I am. Chemo is poison. But I'm here today because he's using it. What's he doing for you? The solution to money not causing our spiritual ruin is to be aware and to remember. It's to be aware of the temptation. And it's to remember the great acts of God for our own good. Christian, if you look with the right eyes, you will see the kindness of God everywhere. For everything good, even the next breath of air you're taking in, is a good gift from a good God who loves you. It is this God we are to remember, the God who's rescued us, the God who delivers us, the God who is kind to us. Now, how is it that we're actually to do that, though? How in the midst of busy lives, with school and work and commutes, with dating and children and extended family, with bills, how is it that we actually can remember God? I don't know about you, but sometimes I have those days where I'll read the Bible in the morning and by lunch I have absolutely no idea what I read. How is it that we can remember God in the stuff of everyday life? Well, thankfully, this this passage tells us not only that we are to remember, but it actually describes for us how. Let me show you a couple of ways in the passage. One of them is in the verse prior to the one we started with. So in verse 10, it won't be on the screens, but let me read it. It says, And you shall eat and be full. Can I get a hallelujah? And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Friends, we are to praise God for his goodness and his generosity. I always think it's funny when I'm I'm with somebody, there's a a prayer the youth like to pray. Um, It's at at a meal. Maybe you've heard them do this. It's, God, please help this to bless our lips and not our hips. Um, That's not a prayer God's going to answer. You can pray that all you want, but you're going to reap what you sow. But praying before we eat is, in fact, wonderfully appropriate. It's a way to look at a tangible gift from God sitting in front of us 
and to thank him for it. But that's not the only way. Friends, when you get dressed and when you have some clothes you like and they actually fit, then as you're pulling those pants on and putting that shirt on, that dress on, you can thank God for the good gift of clothes. Or as you get on your bike to go to work or in your car or take your skateboard over to school, you can thank God for transportation. Friends, you can find yourself doing this throughout the day as your needs are provided for because everything we have is a gift from God. We can praise God for His goodness and generosity. And of course, this must lead us chiefly to remember what we have spiritually. I love what Paul told Timothy in his last letter. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Friends, the greatest gift you have is not what you wear or how much you have. The greatest gift you have is your salvation. You, sinner, have Jesus. And daily, we ought to remember Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we have life and forgiveness and peace and joy and power and purpose and courage. Remember Jesus Christ. Second, this passage teaches us that we should give ourselves completely to obeying God's commands with God's people. If you look at verse 11, you'll notice that it's very careful to point out that a lack of obedience to God's word, a disregard for his commandments, is what leads to forgetting him. And so as we have more, then the temptation is to begin concentrating on the more and the self and forgetting what God's instructed us to do. And as that happens, then we swing into forgetting God. Now, of course, the opposite is also true. When we give ourselves to daily reading God's Word, to paying attention to what He commands, to laboring in relationship with one another, to help each other grow up in Christ and obey Christ, then that is safeguarding us against this temptation to forget God. In obeying God, we will remember God. Frankly, I think this is an arena of life that we as a congregation could grow in. How often when we get together are our conversations actually about the kindness of God, the goodness of God, the commandments of God, and laboring with each other to help us grow? I think we have room to make progress there. Particularly in a church where there's so many young people. There is a sense in which if you are in your 20s or in your teens, that sign, caution, cliff ahead, beware, is still out ahead of you. There's a sense in which you haven't faced this temptation to the degree that you likely will as you gain further progress in a career. And so young people, seek out people who are older than you, who have 
faced this temptation and not fall into it. And those of you who are older, and by older I mean 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. We even have people in our church in their 90s. Friend, if you have lived through this and you still love Jesus, seek out folks younger than you and help them that they might not make the same mistakes you did. Let's help each other remember and obey God's Word. Another way we are told in this text to remember God is to cultivate a sense of humility daily. We need daily to fight against ingratitude. The only antidote to an ever-present temptation toward prideful self-reliance is to work hard at humility. Humility doesn't come naturally. It's supernatural. It's got to be tended to and prayed for. If you look at verse 17, it says, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth. Friend, hear me closely. There is no self-made entrepreneur. The most gifted and hardworking among us are not getting what we have through our own intelligence. We're not gritting our teeth and demonstrating why we're better than anybody else. We have in us no innate self-generating power or creativity. It is all coming from God. Who you are isn't only a result of what you were given at birth. It's also a result of the ever-present, sustaining power of God. Whether you have a lot or you have a little, you have what you have because you have the power of God. And so, friends, every time we go study or go to work, we ought to do so with a cultivation, attending to, of humility. God, thank you that even as I study, I do so, I labor, I work hard because your power is present within me. God, even as I go to make this sales call, I do so because you're present and your power is within me. God, as I respond to this new business venture, I do so because your presence and power are in me. Friend, you will be buffering, safeguarding. You will be a bubble boy or a bubble girl if you will build around you the daily cultivation of a humility that says, not by my might or strength, but by the power of God will I do what I do today. Certainly an aspect of this is, is memorizing Scripture, remembering what it says, and in so doing, developing the humility to live under it. I love what Proverbs verse, chapter 30, verses 8 and 9 say. Maybe this would be a text for you to memorize. It says, remember, remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that's needful for me lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? 
lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Friend, what if our concern was not an ever-increasing sense of lifestyle, improvement, but to live on what we need and humbly cultivate the humility that comes only from God? Now, what happens if we don't remember? Say that another way. What if you're at the Grand Canyon and you see that sign and you don't pay any attention and you just run as fast as you can? You die. From Deuteronomy chapter 8 teaches... If you run headlong into material abundance and in so doing, you forget God and you keep running and you run deeper and deeper and deeper into spiritual amnesia and you do so for weeks, months, years, decades, then that unchecked spiritual arrogance will in the end show you that you have served money, not God, and you will perish. And for people who live in a place in which we are surrounded by and often are people with far more than we need, this of all passages ought to feel pressing on our soul. Because the temptation is everywhere. Do you know what happened to Israel? Moses said, before they crossed the Jordan River, here is the temptation you're going to face. They crossed the river. They built their houses. They planted their crops. They developed tremendous wealth. And in so doing, they forgot God. If we fast forward a couple hundred years in the book of Hosea, chapter 13, it says this, I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt, you know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full They were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. The same will be true for you and the same will be true for me. Unless by God's grace, together, we labor to beware and remember.